All right, well, I'm here with Roxy Koss, whose new album is going to be coming out in late August, August 23rd to be exact. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for joining us here today, Roxy. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so why don't we talk about this? What is the new album, Quintet, that's coming out? Um, what, what was the motivation behind it besides, you know, wanting to put out yet another album as a leader? <laughs> well, it started as a video project. I was not happy with, I felt like I wanted a stronger presence um, of video content online available of full tracks with the band. Um, so I wanted to get a couple videos together. And as we started planning for it, I realized, well, I want the audio to sound good. And if we're recording the audio anyway, why don't I just make it a full album? And then we ended up, so we ended up having the full album, but with also, also with the accompanying videos for each track. Um, and then, you know, because it started with that idea in mind, the material um, came from our book. So I didn't actually write any new material for this album other than an arrangement that I had for All or Nothing at All. And that had actually been recorded for The Future is Female, but in the end, we decided that it didn't work for that album. So we had that arrangement. But um, other than that, we just kind of wanted to record tunes that are, you know, they've become our favorite tunes from the book over the years. So a little sampling from each of the last four records um, with the addition of All or Nothing at All and uh, kind of just represent the way the band performs them live because some of them have evolved over time from the original versions on the recordings that they came out on in the first place. You know, that's really interesting because I feel, uh, you know, at least when I talk to Nick and whatnot, it seems like all the musicians, when they, you know, when they want to put out something first, like the, the album is the utmost important and like they don't consider uh, like videos in media of it. So it's interesting that you came from like the opposite side and you're like, Hey, I want to make some videos. Oh, maybe, you know, all right, I'll turn it into an album too. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it, the timing worked out because I, I do like to keep putting albums out to have fresh stuff for the radio stations and, you know, just having more, more projects to promote when we're doing touring and live shows. Um, so the timing worked out, but I, I think that more and more, you know, people are consuming media through video primarily. And so it's really important to have that element. And just the the fact that we don't have that much content out there representing what it is we actually do, I felt that that was really important to prioritize that. That's awesome. Now, do you, so this is going to be your fifth record as a leader, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. How, like that's like, Nick also does that too, where he puts out like a lot of records. Um, how has it evolved? Like, I'm sure your first record was overwhelming in some sense. And like, you know, cause you're just like starting to learn how that entire process goes, but you know, what are you still learning from it now or, or things that like, you're like, well, I'm glad that I'm finally getting this together. You know, maybe advice that you have for someone that's trying to put out their record. Definitely. Well, you know, you're right. The first one felt like, a huge, huge thing. Um, I think when I made my first record, I, I, I didn't really know anything about how to do it or, you know, what the process was or even anything about the industry. I was right out of college and had a little local gig in my neighborhood. And so I had been writing and 
playing with my band, but I really, you know, didn't know how to take the next step with my career or as a band leader. And I ended up just um, saying, you know, I want to make a CD. And, you know, at that point, technology was starting to shift to make it more possible for people to, you know, do DIY projects. So I actually recorded it at home and mixed it at home and uh, ended up, you know, I got it professionally mastered, but um, really did a lot of the work myself, worked with my mom on the artwork. And uh, after I had created the whole thing, you know, a Uh, a publicist and a radio promoter contacted me, Carrie Gaffney, and she said, you know, I really like this project and we'd love to promote it. And I was like, well, I don't even know what that is. So at that point I was really, really naive. I I was just starting out. So the learning curve was really steep. So in terms of that part of just understanding what the process is, what does it take? What are the steps? You know, what order? What's the timeline? I definitely have gotten more comfortable with that process. being the fifth album but that being said there's definitely things that i'm still learning and i would imagine i'll just continue to learn as i go my whole life um and i think that the biggest thing that's changed is that like you said when i made that first record it it just felt like a huge deal it was like i wanted it was a lot of pressure that i was putting on myself because i felt like this was the it you know it was the only album that would be out there of me. And so I felt like, oh my gosh, it has to be perfect. And what that means is that it, it took me a long time to put out and it took me even longer to get the next one out because I still felt like that pressure. And so I ended up releasing my second album, Restless Idealism, I think five years later. So I think my advice to, to, you know, a young musician would be don't, feel like it has to be perfect because what you realize as soon as I put the second album out, I realized this, which is that as soon as you put something new out, the the old one doesn't really matter so much. What matters is that you're consistently getting content out there so that people can hear you and enjoy you. And sort of that momentum is what keeps people engaged because, you know, we all do this. If we don't hear about something, we forget about it over time. So if you, you know, if you're putting stuff out there more consistently, then people just kind of remember to listen to your music. And, you know, that's what we want. We want to be helping people and, you know, changing their lives by by our music. So um, for me, the goal became to get things out there more frequently, which in a way just kind of forces you to take the pressure off of it being perfect because, you know, you're going to put something out there again soon. So it doesn't have to be the be all end all project. Right. I mean, I think, I think you kind of hit the the nail on the head with, I mean, I'm not to like devalue our college degrees or anything or any musician that does that. But I think for us, like almost that penultimate thing is like, you know, make, making an album. Like that is the thing that we put on some uh, pedestal or something. But yeah, what, what are you, what are your thoughts of like, uh, I know I've had this conversation with other people before and, some people are very much of that mindset of like, look, when you're in college and when you're, when you've decided that you want to become a professional musician, like you need to be putting out content because like you said, like you need to get in people's ears, you know, uh, a track record of growth and such like that versus also the other discussion of like, well, if you haven't put out any content, you're in like a really good spot of when you're going to decide to like make that announcement to the public rather than just to yourself that, Hey, this is what I want to do. And how, how do you find the, or what are your thoughts at least on how to find the balance between that? Um, I think that 
if you, you know, not to sound too hippy dippy, but it's like, if you kind of just go with the flow, things tend to happen at the right time and you don't want to be forcing anything. So if there are, you know, challenge after challenge popping up with something, maybe it's not the right time. Um, but you know, that being said, you, it's, it's really on us as jazz musicians, you're a freelance, you know, career, you're, you're an artist and it's really up to you. You're, you're your only limitation, um, to a certain extent. So, um, you know, everybody's going to have a different path and everybody's going to have different priorities, but if you really want to be a leader, you know, there's no reason to wait. And I think that, um, just again, that pressure, it's just not conducive to creativity. And, you know, we are, are, generally our own worst critics and so whatever you think about your your music like oh i'm not ready the music isn't ready you're never going to feel ready so don't wait to feel ready you know just wait to feel like you have something cohesive and something that represents you right now because that's all a record is it's just documenting it's recording this moment in time and hopefully you know, I don't want to be as good as I'll be when I'm 80 or 60, because that would mean a very boring life where you, you're you just already as good as you'll ever get. So, right. you know, of course, you're going to sound better next year. Hopefully you do sound better next year and then you can record that and release that. And then, you know, there's room for growth. So it doesn't need to be so much pressure put on it. No, I mean, that's that's an awesome uh, uh, perspective to look at it. And I'm sure it's, you know, it's easier now looking back than as it was with your first record, like you're talking about to, you know, have that, uh, uh, maturity or, or, or perspective about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the more you do it, the easier it gets to actually feel that. Right. Now, what made you decide you wanted to be a leader? Because I, I mean, I feel like as horn players, it's maybe a little bit more natural, uh, than rhythm section players in some ways. Cause you know, there's such a, everyone's always looking for a bass player as a joke or something like that. But what made you decide like, Hey, like I'm Roxy Koss. I want to step out and, and like, this is my thing. Um, I think it's a few different factors. One of which is probably just very practical. Um, I graduated college in 2008 and the economy crashed and there were no gigs. <laughs> so right. I really, it was like, oh, I'm done with school. I have a piece of paper and nothing. Right, right. Um, so I really had to create my own thing. And that was the only real way I knew how to do it at the time. Um, I also, you know, consequently learned how to put myself out there um, to also build like my side musician work as well. But um, that was kind of the immediate way I knew how to control my own destiny. Um, the other part of it, which I think is actually probably more important and more the real reason is just that that is what is the most rewarding for me musically. Um, I think composition has always been just as important to me as performing as you know playing an instrument i was composing the whole time like since i started piano lessons so even before saxophone i was composing so um performing my compositions is something that's it's just part of why i do it and so it definitely needs to be the you know one of the top priorities in my in my everyday musical life and career is 
getting my music developed and played. And um, I think obviously the, again, the easiest way practically to do that for me was just to have my band play it. Um, and then I think, you know, there is some freedom that comes with being your own band leader because you get to dictate the terms. So it's right. like, oh, I want to go visit my family in Michigan. I'm going to book a gig in Michigan and then, you know, maybe that'll pay for my flight, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of use band leading as a means to achieve different goals that I want. And in the end, it's become probably the most overall fulfilling musical thing in my life right now at this point. Now, did you ever have a, a feeling, especially after school, because there's two groups of people that at least I've experienced with finishing up school is um, there's some people who are like, hey, I'm done with school. I want to do my own thing. Like, I don't want a teacher. I don't want anything like I want to have time for me, you know, and then there's the other group that's like I they, they still want to search out a uh, a mentor or something like the new version of, of the messengers, you know, or something like that, where there's an older musician um, helping them out or or, or continuing uh, teaching in that way. Did you find um, that you necessarily were, were against a mentorship like that or just wasn't happening at the time? You're like, you know what? Screw it. I can't wait around. Well, I don't really see it in conflict. I think um, I definitely had some experiences, probably mostly related to being a woman, but not all, where, you know, I would end up in a situation where that we we kind of like idolize these people on the scene, these legends or whoever, the the musical people that we look up to. And then you turn, it turns out like, oh, <laughs> this person is not the best person right. as a person, right. even though I love their music. Um, so I think I, I had become a little bit jaded by the time I finished college from some of my experiences. Um, and then also just the feeling that you're, when you're in school, you're taking in so much information that I needed time to let it actually sink in and to actually practice the things that I had heard about, right. you know, you can't integrate everything right away. So I, I think it did take a few years for me to kind of like settle out all the stuff that I had been inputting during those years. Um, but I did definitely seek out more mentorship pretty immediately following that. I, um, you know, I took a lesson with Donnie McCaslin. I took a lesson with Ingrid Jensen. I was going out to hear music a lot and I was trying to introduce myself to the the band leaders that I would go hear and just see how they responded. And um, I participated in a few other programs like Betty Carter Jazz Ahead program at the Kennedy Center and uh, Ravinia, the Staines Institute in Chicago. So through those experiences, I actually did meet a bunch of different mentors like Rufus Reed, Nathan Davis, Curtis Fuller. Um, etc. But I think that what is most organic when you get out of school is transitioning to the mentorship that's actually coming from the work you're doing. So I would say probably the most lasting or deeper mentorships that happened for me were the band leaders who ended up hiring me. So people like Sherry Maracle, Jeremy Pelt, um, and actually later Rufus Reed. Um, you know, people who were hiring me to be in their bands. And that way you're, you're still in that mentorship position because just naturally they're older than you. They're more experienced. They've been doing this longer. 
they're going to be teaching you stuff just by being around them and playing with them. And then also, you know, those people in particular, um, Jeremy, Sherry, um, those types of people, Clark Terry, they also, it's part of their personality. It's part of their value system that they really want to pass on this information to younger generations. So they've become mentors for many different people that they hire, which I think is really cool. That's, that's awesome. Um, now I kind of want to jump off that because like you mentioned, uh, Betty Carter and Ravinia, which to people that don't know what those are, they're two, uh, highly prestigious workshops that really focus on compositions uh, and composing. Right. And you spoke about how like composing has always been a really big deal for you. So a little bit of a loaded question. Um, how do you balance that with like spending time on composing and then spending time on like maintaining the saxophone and playing the <laughs> Because, you know, those are no two small things to do. Right. I know. I'm like laughing over here. Um, well, I think in, interestingly, even in your question, the way you phrased it, um, you know, that those are two programs that are focusing on composition. The way that they describe themselves is focusing on composition and performance. And I think mm -hmm. that the jazz world is an interesting place because anytime we're not completely focused on performance, people assume we must be focused on something else. Right. <laughs> um, but when in reality, like for instance, those programs, it was, it was like, you have to be strong in both to participate. And right. we were, we were working on our compositions, but we were also working on how do we perform these pieces? Um, and I think that I, because composition is so important to me, I kind of see this in, in the community, but there's, there is more of a, uh, I don't know how to call it. Um, just a priority on, you know, we place a higher value perhaps on the performance rather than um, the content. Like, sure. and by performance, yeah. I'm referring to like technical ability. Right. Um, and I think that that is almost a hundred percent coming from just the musicians in the community. I think that for the most part, fans and critics and everyone enjoying the music doesn't necessarily do this. It's self-imposed. Um, but I have always kind of been annoyed at that <laughs> because I think that um, there are other ways to make something strong other than just, like you said, how well do you play your instrument? To me, yes, you have to be really good at your instrument because that's your voice. But for what purpose? Like, that's not the end. You have to be good at your instrument because it allows you to express yourself fully. Just like when we master a language, if you're fluent in English, then you can express yourself more fully. Like if you only know adjectives that are nice and cool and smart, then the capacity to express any level of degree of those ideas is very limited. But as you learn more expressive nouns and adjectives and verbs, you know, you can get a deeper idea across. So I think the same thing applies. It's like, I, of course, am working at becoming a better saxophonist because that allows me to express deeper ideas more fluidly. Um, but it's not the end goal just to be a technician. I want to be a musician. I want to be somebody who can express ideas musically. You know, that that's that's really interesting that you kind of worded it like that, because I think and like that never ending debate we have now of like, oh, well, why don't people like jazz now like they used to, you know, without realizing that 
you know, there's more music now and like it's evolved and like culture's gone on. They always attribute it to, um, or often attribute it to at least is like how you saying something along the lines of like musicians play for the sake of musicians, you know, rather than, mm-hmm. but they never talk about the reason that some people might still like the compositions is for like the quality and the content of the composition rather than just yeah. attacking or, or trying to, uh, denounce the way that they were like maybe playing over the composition right 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 so that's that's really cool so yeah actually i really like what you just said i think it's super insightful because it reminds me like a lot of times when i'm performing live people you know people come up to musicians after and they like to talk to them and stuff so people when people come up to me oftentimes what they say their feedback is that you know oh we really liked your playing but you know, I really loved this composition. Yeah. And when I was younger and even sometimes still, it kind of like hurts me because I feel like, like, you know, as we're saying, we prioritize how, how good am I, how good am I coming across as a saxophonist? But I think one thing I never thought of, but what you said kind of reminded me that, you know, if someone else were to play my composition, the composition wouldn't come through in the same way. So the way I'm playing it is actually very important to what they're hearing. And maybe the way I'm playing it is actually not covering up the composition. And so even though it may not seem impressive, it's like there's some masterfulness to that too, where it's like, how do I play in a way that doesn't distract from the music or the composition? No, I mean, that's, yeah, because I mean, I just did the, um, the Steens Institute this past summer and working with Rufus, they, uh, mm-hmm. there was like an original I brought in and we sat down and we were looking at it and he's like, man, why do you just do the same thing again? Like it's yeah. Like you did this thing when you played and it sounded cool. He's like, but no one else is going to do that. So like change right. it and, you know, invest in the, in the composition, not just how you're going to play the composition. Right. Absolutely. So that I mean that's that's interesting and uh I think a really uh a deep point that people make about cuz everyone says like oh well their playing is so technical and like that's it's just over everyone's heads but then there's people like you know Robert Glasper or Winton or anybody who like can play in in such a uh, a highly technical manner but it comes across in a different way because of the weight of the compositions or their ability to simplify it like Clark Terry was you know a genius at that Right, right. You, I mean, you, these people are masters because they're using the technical ability to communicate, not as an ends, you know, not as it's a means to an ends, not the end itself. I think it's like, they're very expressive and the focus is not on demonstrating the focus is on communicating. Now, um, you said you went to William Patterson for, for school. So I'm sure maybe it made a little bit more sense for you. Um, but how does it feel to like be in the city now? Um, you, you know, you came from Seattle to New York city, which I'm sure was a big change, but yes, (laughs) right. But do you still feel like, obviously there's still a heavy, um, and, and thriving community of, of jazz and modern jazz and all these different little genres and subgenres and whatnot. Um, do you think it's as prevalent now for musicians to go to New York? Do you think they should just spend their times there, they should make their living there. Like, what do you think New York contributes now to the musician versus, you know, 40 or 50 years ago when like New York was the thing, you know? 
Well, I think your question carries a lot of assumptions in it. I mean, right. I would argue that New York is still the thing and right. the place right. to be. Um, it's it's a different world now in many ways. Um, if you just look at venues around the country, um, there are less jazz venues that are open. One just closed in Seattle this weekend. Um, you know, Tula's, which had been open for years and years, is right. closing. Uh, and then somewhere like Jazz Alley, which is, you know, probably the biggest venue in Seattle for touring musicians. When I was growing up, they would feature one person for two weeks straight or one week, maybe. And these days they feature them for one night, two if they're like, you know, Kenny G or something, someone really big. Right, right, right. But for the most part, it's like there are less venues, there are less gigs to play. Um, so the the scene is different. So your question, sorry, it's very complicated to no, me good, because it's, um, it's, you know, it's very complex. But I think um, what I've heard from people who have been in New York or who used to be in New York is that it's much harder these days to survive in New York as a musician because in back in the day, um, you know, for instance, rent wasn't so, so crazy in the neighborhoods where jazz was really thriving, such as the village in Harlem. It's like you could just kind of roll out of bed, you know, go check out the session and roll home. Well, now it's like, you have you have to add like an hour train commute onto that because you may not be able to afford to live so close to these venues. So it's just like everyday things are much different for us. And and we know this, you know, we we have technology which changes everything. Um, we're not really making money from our recordings, for instance, because of Spotify and streaming and stuff like that. Um, so all of these things really factor into this question. But I do think despite all of the new challenges that we face, I think that uh, being in New York is still really, really imperative for any young musician trying to learn jazz, because I think New York jazz is different than jazz in any other city in the world. And it's not to say that it's better, although I think New York is probably the strongest scene just because it has the most people in numbers and therefore you're going to have more diversity like you said these pockets these subgenres. you're going to have more people playing for instance hot jazz at mona's or you're going to have more people playing at the jazz gallery you know very modern jazz um you're going to have more avant-garde jazz you're going to have more um you know swing music like every genre you can imagine fusion whatever there are so many musicians in New York playing it that it's going to be played at a high level. Whereas where I, when I look at a scene like Chicago or Seattle, it's very strong as well, but it's strong in, you know, smaller bits like, Oh, they have their own voice in this way. Like Seattle is a good example, I think, because, you know, they actually have musicians there who are making their own thing musically. But the difference is just numbers. There are less people doing that music together. Um, so all of that being said, I feel like because of that influx of people coming to New York and the numbers, that the music is still largely being driven from New York. The, where the music is going, how is it growing, what direction is it taking. Um, and the dialect of New York jazz musicians is something... 
I think that you just kind of have to experience if you're going to pursue the music, you know, for your life. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, you move here forever. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, you move here as soon as you graduate. Like there's no rules around it. I just think that it's, it's like, you're, you're not going to lose by moving to New York. Right, you know, right. you're just going to gain, gain experience. And, and because it's such a challenge these days, and because there's so many people, I think that's the other part of it. You're not going to experience anywhere else, which is just like competition in a healthy way where it, it can also be inspiration. Like every time you go out, you can hear, you can choose between like 10 world-class bands. You can be inspired by those bands. You can, you know, meet somebody that you might play with in the future. You might get ideas about compositions or you might have like a whole thing of, oh, wow, I really need to practice this scale. Or, you know, just every time you leave the house, you're going to have something that will spur you to keep working. No, I mean, I, 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 I hear you, you know, I think there's, uh, I think it's something that no matter whether you're, you know, you want to live in LA or whether you want to live in Chicago forever, there's still that feeling of like, you know, like a mean of, uh, of paying dues or something. Like I need to spend some yeah. time here and like, just, just feel it out and see what it's about and, and let it, um, contribute to, to my growth in whatever way it does, you know, whether it teaches you like, Hey, maybe I'm not where I thought I was and, and is humbling in that sense. Or maybe it teaches you like that you like it more or, or opens your eyes to a new, new perspective or, or what have you, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, I say that obviously from a biased place of, I live in New York, but I, you know, and I want to acknowledge like there are musicians, you know, I can think of, a few that I know personally right off the bat who don't live in New York and I don't think ever have and are like some of the best musicians in the world. So oh, it's not course. that you absolutely have to, if you're ever going to be good, that's not the point. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I hear you. It's, you know, it's certainly, you're not saying like, Hey, you're either here, or you're nobody, but, uh, right. It doesn't hurt at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I want to wrap it up with a couple of things. I'm a very big proponent that um a lot of people check out our music you know of course there's some that check it out because they like the music but then a lot of people check it out because they like you as an individual uh and they're invested in you know roxy Koss or whomever it is right um so i want to ask you some stuff that's non-music related which okay. is a far far-fetched concept i know here um, <laughs> let's start off with what do you like to do then when you're not doing music like you're not composing you're not doing sex and you're not doing business for music like purely no music involved <laughs> what do you like to do? i can't imagine <laughs> right right um no i mean i i do think you know music is my life and as i get older it's it's shifted in terms of like wow this has always been an assumption i've made like music is my life and what happens if it's not and i i mean i've always enjoyed other things but you know, it is, it is all consuming and it is more than a full-time job to be a musician. Um, I mean, I have friends, I have family members that I spend time with and we don't do music. So there are other things I enjoy, but, you know, I don't think most jazz musicians really have a hobby because we were so, you know, we, we are overloaded with work, but also the work is not work. It's fun. Right. And so it's like, if what you're doing 
doesn't feel like work, there doesn't need to be this sort of like unwinding from it in the same way. Well, it's funny because like, you're not the first person that's uh, justifying like, look, I do have friends. Like I go out and like, I do <laughs> uh, no, that's cool. I like, I completely hear you. Um, you know, I just know, uh, sometimes people need like escapes and like, look, when I come yeah, home, yeah, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about this right now, but I know I'm going to end up doing it anyways. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I like reading. I like, you know, I read books. I binge Netflix and, you know, I, I'm very crafty. So I get into little, you know, projects around the house and stuff like that. But, what was the you know, I do you think, um, I'm well, it's work-based right now. I'm reading something called Creativity to Community, which is a book about starting an arts nonprofit. Okay. Um, so that has to do with Weijo, Women right. in Jazz Organization. Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, most of the books I read are work-related, um, whether they're sort of like self-help, you know, I, I see those as very direct to my career because I am my product. So I need to make sure that my, you know, myself is right, right. if that makes sense. Right. <laughs> um, what about the last thing you binge watched then or in the middle of binge watching? Let's see. Well, I love watching HGTV, like anything <laughs> right, home right. makeover. Right, right. <laughs> yep. I grew up, uh, my, my dad is a construction manager, so he, he built our house. So I grew up around construction. So I just love home improvement stuff. That's awesome. That's awesome. And not, you're not, of course, not referring to the Tim Allen TV show. We're talking about. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. Um, Let's see if there's one other. What is your um, favorite place to go to in New York that's not a venue? That's a great question. Um, what was the last place you went to in New York that was not a venue? <laughs> uh, Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do like I like checking out different restaurants, though. Like we have some good restaurants in the neighborhood, uh, Taqueria and uh, Brick Oven Pizza Place, stuff like that. Um I like to go to the beach, even though the beach in New York is pretty gross. I do like to get there in the summer. And yeah, that's cool. Um, and let's see, let's uh, wrap it up with this. And what was you say the um, like best experience that music has afforded? Like the best, maybe the best wow. gig you got to play or the best, you know, you got to go to this country because of a gig or something like that. Like the something that you look at and you're like, wow, I would not have done this if it wasn't for music. I kind of, I mean, this is corny, but I feel like my whole life <laughs> because I would not like if music is life, it, it really does permeate most of my existence. I would definitely not be living in New York City if I were not pursuing jazz as a career. So just my everyday life, you know, I'm grateful that I get to live a life where I, I like what I do every day. Every day is different. It's an adventure every day. And then the other part of it would be traveling. Um, I couldn't pick one particular place, but just the fact that I get, you know, I've gone to Europe several times and just kind of gone around the world, seeing different places that I probably would never be able to afford to go to and have any impetus to go, you know, if I was working in a job. Um, my, when I was in high school, we, the jazz band went to Europe and we went to um, Switzerland and it was just like the most beautiful thing. And part of it was the fact that it was the first time I'd been to Europe, but it was just like, whoa, I need to go back there. Yeah. Um, 
And then the other place that was stuck out to me was Malta, which is an island sort of between Africa and Europe. And it, when we were landing, I, I went there with Jeremy Pelt's band. And when we were landing, it looked like Star Wars or something. I was like, wow, <laughs> I've never seen Earth look like this. It's really crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think, um, I, at least I hope most musicians would agree with me, that like when musicians travel, it's really different because we're a lot more, um, not to say other people aren't, but like very open to, to like cultural stuff. And like you really want to see like, how is that culture different, whether it is the food, which most commonly is what we check out, you know, or the yeah. architecture or, or whatnot. Like, we're really like, hey, I'm in Italy. Like, let's do like the Italians, you know, or I'm in Malta. Like, yeah. let's do like the Maltans or, or you know. Yeah, yeah, so. absolutely. And I think that as a musician traveling, you do experience it different than a tourist because you're working. So you see what it's like to work there. And the people treat you differently than if you were just a tourist. So it it yeah. really is more insightful, I think, and it's really rewarding. Yeah, less annoyed with your presence being there, more enjoying it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, well, look, thank you again, Roxy, for coming on. Uh, to everyone listening, make sure you get on over to Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, uh, all those places that music comes out. There's so many nowadays. YouTube will be posting... Uh, the videos from her album upcoming uh two of them are already up for the singles and check out her new release quintet which will be coming out august 23rd which either will be already out by the time this podcast comes out or coming out short so thanks again rox thank you and if anybody wants an autographed copy they can go to my website <laughs>